On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Bryn Jones-Rastelli. Bryn's a medical speech-language pathologist and current doctoral student in the Swallowing Research Lab at New York University. She specializes in optimizing health outcomes and quality of life when normal swallowing is disrupted by disease or injury. Bryn's research interests are related to the impact of neurologic injury and trauma on the swallowing mechanism. Her current research aims to characterize changes in swallowing associated with spinal disease and following spinal surgery, as well as how to optimize post-surgical outcomes. Bryn has over 10 years of clinical experience as a medical SLP working primarily in acute care and inpatient rehab hospitals. She continues to maintain active clinical practice as a medical SLP at a local Manhattan hospital. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Hi, Bryn. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be here tonight and talk about some of the research that I've been doing as part of my, my PhD studies. Yay. Yay. So Bryn is just, she's a wealth of knowledge. I, we've known each other like virtually through the internet for years and years and years. And I'm so happy to finally have you on. And I know you're deep in your PhD and, and this is exciting stuff. So thank you so much for joining us, Bryn. And so tell the people a little bit about yourself. Great. Um, so my name is Bryn Jones-Rastelli. I am a clinician. I primarily work in acute care still, um, but I'm also in my third year of doctoral studies in the Swallowing Research Lab at New York University. Uh, my advisor is Professor Sonia Mulfenter, and we've been deep in research on anterior cervical discectomy infusion and the impacts that that has on swallowing. Yeah. All right. So what do you want to talk about today, Bryn? All about the spine. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Spines and spine surgery. That is, that is what we are into. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So before we get into it, let me just sort of set the stage here. So I, I now that I'm sort of doing my PhD too, obviously, you know, I worked clinically for 15 years. Now I'm getting my PhD too. And there's so many things that I'm just like, I, I want to write this up because I want this to get published so I can go wave it in some doctor's face. And it's, what's interesting is like, I've, I've done just a sort of a few papers in my PhD on ACDF too, because I think they're so... I worked in one facility, gosh, it was maybe like five, six years ago. And it was a string of like for three months, every single patient I got was like a referral from neurosurgery, ACDF, had no idea that they were going to have swallowing difficulties. Everything was swollen. Everything was a mess. And I just so badly, and, and I would always call this one neurosurgeon and he's like, my patients do not have trouble swallowing. I don't know why you keep calling me. Like, I don't touch their swallow. And I was like, Gah! like... <laughs> I don't touch their the location of their swallow. Like it's like a geographical landmark. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Like it was like the operation game, you know, it's like, eh, no, you're literally hitting it every time, sir. So anyways, whenever I hear ACDF, I so badly just want to get some really good published research so that we can talk to our friends in neurosurgery and maybe have them warn our patients about what could potentially happen and that they might have to come see us someday. So all that to say, take it from here, Britt. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I have, I have many similar stories. Um, I'm now working with my third neurosurgery team clinically. And now like, I guess my fourth, if you're talking about the team that I do research with and it's so variable I from, you know, this surgery doesn't cause swallowing. And why are you, you know, asking to even see my patients or telling me my patients have trouble swallowing to just like ambivalence, yeah. <laughs> if you will. Like, and I, I, as a clinician personally was frustrated with like continuously playing hospital survivor with these patients. Like yeah. if you survive dinner, then you can have a speech consult <laughs> some yeah. of the time. Um, and so this is actually really the reason that I chose to come to NYU and why I chose to study with Sonia for my PhD, because she was doing research in this population and it is very understudied. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a clinician, I was very frustrated by that because I, you know, came into this after working in the field for 10 years and like, I didn't really know that much about research um, or funding or how collaborations even work. And it was frustrating for me that nobody was studying these patients. And now I understand that there are a lot of barriers to studying these patients. Um, we yeah. just happen to be very fortunate that we have surgeons at NYU who believe in this project and believe that this is a thing that needs to be better understood and better studied. And they're willing to refer their patients and collaborate with us. And we're also really lucky that we did get institutional funding uh, through NYU, through the CTSI project. Um, and so really be between those two mechanisms, um, we were really fortunate to be able to pull this off. That's awesome. That's fantastic. If you wouldn't mind, can we, can we touch on some of those barriers a little bit? Because I think, especially yeah. like now that I'm in my PhD too, I'm like, oh, I'd love to study this. This would be a great project. And then someone's like, well, no, you can't because dot, dot, dot. And, and I think as a clinician who goes to then wants to become a researcher, I think those things are so frustrating because it's like, why can't we, you know, and I've, I've always been that person that's like, okay, tell me no, and I'll figure out a way to make it happen. But there are some real like logistical <laughs> reasons why we can't study something. So I, I would actually love to take the conversation there for a minute, if you don't mind, if there's some things you yeah. can share. There. I would love to, um, you know, I think that the biggest hurdle with like any research project, irregardless of what you want to study is funding the big F money. It's all about money, right? <laughs> um, it costs money to buy out a clinician's productivity, to do video fluoroscopy, to do these studies, to contact patients, to collect data. It costs money to compensate the patients for their time for coming in and, and volunteering to participate in research. Um, it costs money to pay for the video fluoroscopic studies for all of the barium, for all of the equipment that goes into this, all the manpower that goes into analyzing it. So that's really a big one. Um, and unfortunately, as you may be realizing also in your PhD, it's been a source of frustration for me that funding mechanisms for swallowing are not awesome. Um, yeah. We don't really have a home in the NIH, which is the big funding mechanism in the United States. Uh, most swallowing research gets funded through specific agencies like aging or cancer. Um, but where does ACDF fit exactly? Um, 
And that's that's a current struggle I'm having as I'm looking at trying to find fucking funding mechanisms um, for like the next stage of this research. Um, is like where will I apply to get money? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thank, so thank that's, you. That's for yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you for talking about that because I think a lot of times those things are not discussed and that's it's it stinks. Yeah. And I, and I think also, you know, it's like, well, why can't we just go pull a bunch of charts from neurosurgery, you know, and that just doesn't happen either. So, yeah. I mean, if you think about um, like clinicians, clinicians are the ones who would institutionally have access to be able to get those medical records and do these uh, retrospective studies. How many of them have time? <laughs> How many of their department managers are going to give them time to do like dedicated time to do research, hook them up with their institutions, biostatisticians and, you know, research support staff. Um, you know, if you're a, in acute care, if you're in inpatient rehab, you're trying to see like eight, nine, sometimes 10 patients a day, where does, where does that even fit in? Um, yeah. So it's, it's hard. And I wish that there was a way that more clinicians could do their own research because I feel like our field would be so much further along yeah. if there were more clinicians who had the resources and the support to do their own research. But it, it is really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that, Bryn. Let's, yeah. um, let's dive into ACDF. So talk to us a little bit about what it is, what it isn't, why you're passionate about it, and why it's something that we as SLPs see a lot more than we I think our, what am I, what am I trying to say? It was something I didn't realize we were going to see a ton of until I saw a ton of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so ACDF is an acronym for a procedure called anterior cervical discectomy infusion. And it's actually one of the most commonly performed outpatient surgical procedures in the United States. It can be a really big moneymaker for a lot of institutions. Um, and there are, I would say, two like primary groups that you could, you know, kind of put patients into uh, for people who get this procedure. One group is people who have traumatic injuries to their spine. They have fractures, their spine is unstable, and a surgeon needs to go in and actually physically stabilize it um, with like metal plates and screws to make sure that the spinal cord is protected and the spine is stabilized and can heal. Um, the other group of patients are people who have degenerative disc disease. So the intervertebral discs that space out your vertebra in your spine actually allow spinal nerves to exit and innervate your periphery. Um, and when those discs wear down from wear and tear, or also even from degenerative diseases like osteoarthritis or cervical spondylosis, those spaces wear down and get, get really narrow. And then the bone can actually pinch on the nerves and it causes really significant and debilitating symptoms like pain, numbness, or even difficulty moving. Um, and anterior cervical discectomy infusion is one of the, considered to be kind of the gold standard, one of the most safe and effective surgical treatments for that when conservative management like pain medications or physical therapy fails. And the way that the procedure is performed is the surgeon will make an anterior lateral neck incision, the front of the neck. They dissect and retract all of the structures that lie anterior to the spine so they can access that disease disc, remove it, put a graft in place and secure it with anterior facing metal plates and screws. And then over time, the graft fuses with the spine, permanently restabilizes it and permanently alleviates that nerve impingement that's causing the patient's symptoms. The issue is that 
like all of the structures that lie anterior to the spine are things like the larynx, the yeah. trachea, the esophagus. Like nobody needs yeah. that, right? <laughs> just bulging over all of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I have found personally in my clinical practice is that um, surgeons either think that it is swallowing problems after surgery either don't exist. It's an acute problem that's going to go away when swelling goes down. Um, or it's, it's not, maybe it's not that big of a deal or it's not that life limiting. And while that could be true for some people, like it's quality of life is totally different for different people. Um, mm -hmm. some people like quality of life is being able to walk without pain. And that's more important than, you know, being able to eat a really challenging texture. But for other people that is decidedly not the case. Um, and I found that patients are not given adequate counseling before they go under the knife to make an actual informed choice some of the time um, yeah. about what the, the real consequences of the surgery are. And I think there, yeah. there are some reasons for that that we can get into. <laughs> yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking of some of those reasons. But yeah, I mean, I think that's really like all that I want from this patient population is I just want the patients to be informed because I think it's so... That for me was just the biggest frustration with so many patients that I would get that would say like, I had no idea this was even possible. Or, and then you call the, the neurosurgeon and they're like, no, we don't tell them that it's possible because this didn't come from me. Like, like you said, just total denial, you know? And, and I think it's, it, it, who are we to say that this patient doesn't need the surgery or anything? That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm, what I just always want patients to do is be empowered to know what might be coming down the pike, what might happen and what can be done, you know, maybe not to prevent it, but to at least compensate it or deal with it for a little bit. I know, like I wrote in, in my book about like, it's just is so important to me that patients are empowered to know, okay, this could potentially happen. If this does happen, then this is who I need to go see. This is the test I need to get done. These are my potential options. It's, it's hopefully not ever a death sentence, but it, there's, there might be some issues for a few months. And it's just, yeah, that's so frustrating to me. So that's, that's yeah. my soapbox with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I would say one of the leading reasons why we can't answer those questions, even like, let's say you have a surgeon who really does want to counsel people that this could be an issue. One of the first questions that I might ask if I were a patient is, well, like, what are the odds of me getting this thing? Um, mm -hmm. Like how frequently does it happen? You know, what's the incidence of this thing happening? But then if you actually look at the ACDF literature, the reported rates of incidence are between one and 79%, <laughs> which is a ridiculously wide range. Yeah. Um, like if you're going to tell me I have a 1% chance of having dysphagia, I might be like, okay, yeah, like my pain is pretty bad. Like I'll, I'll roll the dice on that. But if you tell me it's a 79% chance, that that might be a different conversation, yeah, right? Sure. I, can't, I came across a paper a week or so ago, and I should have saved it because I just was so mind blown. But it was something like, it was between like 4 and 60% of the geriatric population presents with dysphagia. And I was like, who would even publish that statistic? Like between 4 and 60%, like that's bananas. But anyways, I digress. But yeah, it's wild. Um, yeah. But then if you actually go back and you look at these studies, um, and Sonia Mulkinter, my, my advisor, published a scoping review in 2023 that's actually open access um, on the way that ACDF has been defined, measured, and captured historically. About 50% of the studies that currently exist have relied on unvalidated outcome measures of dysphagia. Some have relied solely on like 
ICD-10 codes. So like the patient was complaining enough that the physician thought it was significant enough to mark it down in the chart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very few studies, like literally a number that you could probably count on your hand, have actually used something like video fluoroscopy or fees. Um, and those studies that exist, the ones that do have instrumental methods for, for measuring dysphagia or quantifying dysphagia are primarily either case control studies where patients who had symptoms were referred to a clinic, usually a voice and swallowing clinic, and they compared those patients to controls who don't have spinal pathology and have never had spine surgery. So we, we can't calculate incidence because we don't know if any of those people who were referred maybe had dysphagia before and it just like wasn't elucidated until they had the surgery or it was exacerbated after they had the surgery. And we can't really like truly understand the effect of the surgery on swallowing from those studies. We can just kind of say this does seem to be a trend and this does seem to be a thing that exists for some people. Um, and then the other group, there are a few that have actually taken preoperative video fluoroscopic stud study data and then looked again after surgery, but only within like the first few weeks. So we don't understand how swallowing recovers naturally, like what happens after those first few weeks. Do they get better? Does the edema persist? Is that the driver? Um, you know, that those are questions that we just don't have answers to. That's You brought up such a great point, something that, you know, obviously once you dive into it, there's more, obvious, always more questions than answers once you dive into research. But I do remember one patient that I had, and I'll remember her like just plain as day, because she had had a history of dysphagia and I had seen her like maybe two or three times, like maybe four or five years before I saw her for after ACDF surgery. And she's like, you know, I, this is even worse than the dysphagia I had after my stroke. Like, this is just so painful. And, and, and it got me thinking like, huh, like, I wonder if she was predisposed to this because she had a prior history of dysphagia. And then your brain goes down all these crazy rabbit holes. So I, but I love that you just said that because that is so true. I, I wonder how many of these patients that just came out of nowhere or did they have some sort of predisposition that led to this? So hmm. yeah, get to work, Bryn. Lots, lots of questions to answer here. So many questions. And I, I have uh, probably, unfortunately, like very few answers, but <laughs> just, just more questions probably. <laughs> I have the easy job today. I just keep get, getting to throw all these questions at you here. Answer this, answer that. All right. Um, let's see, where do we, um, yeah. Oh yeah. Let's go into the clinical implications. So yeah, let's, let, so let's talk Brent. like, so why is this so valuable for patients to know? Why is this so important for patients to know? And I think, you know, one of the main things obviously after surgery is, is nutrition is so important. And when you all of a sudden mess with that entire body system, we've got problems. So talk a little bit about nutritional implications for ACDF patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that I, you know, got no education on until I did my own educating <laughs> through my clinical practice as a clinician. Um, and I really wish that I had known this uh, when I started practicing, but it's important to consider with any surgical population, not just ACDF, but anybody undergoing surgery at all, what the impacts of that are on the body. Um, and we can kind of lump it into to three main like goals of postoperative care. The first is going to be to prevent infection from happening. The second is going to be to optimize nutrition. And we'll talk about why that's so important. And the last one is to mitigate cost to the patient. Um, and I'm not even just talking about financial cost, but also 
cost in the form of their health through increased morbidity or mortality, um, and even psychosocial consequences, especially when we're talking about a surgery like ACDF that is frequently performed to improve quality of life. Our patients like may be paying a psycho an extra psychosocial consequence because of their dysphagia that they maybe weren't informed that they could have. Um, but I digress. Um, I think it's important, especially when talking about ACDF, to maybe start with the immune system and the inflammatory responses that the body goes through. So the reason we worry about infection so much after any type of surgery is because surgery is a traumatic experience for the body. And the body is going to respond with that with an upregulated immune response, a pro-inflammatory response. So the body is going to send these specialized um, pro-inflammatory molecules and immune cells to the surgical site, and it's going to actually induce inflammation, which is an important part of the wound healing process and the body's natural defense to fight off infection, maybe from things that entered the body during the operation, for example. Um, but if it gets out of hand, it can make things really bad for the patient. It can, it can cause the wound to not heal. Um, it can cause them to be extra susceptible to infection um, and things can get very out of whack. So the way that the body balances that is then it goes, okay, so we have this pro-inflammatory response happening. Now we're going to send an anti-inflammatory response to counterbalance it. And it's going to distribute anti-inflammatory immune cells to kind of tamper down that pro-inflammatory response, keep it in check, and help the body restore homeostasis so that the body can heal. Um, and one of the key drivers for this process, what, what it needs is it needs energy. And so it needs adequate nutrition and actually upregulated nutrition. Um, so patients after surgery wind up having an upregulated metabolism. They have increased energy needs and they enter what we call a hypermetabolic state. And the way that their body drives that energy is from breaking down complex molecules in fat, in protein uh, that it derives from the skeletal muscles and from uh, conversion of, of glucose um, in the liver. Um, and even sometimes creating more glucose from non-carbohydrate sources, which is a process called glyconeogenesis. So what's happening at this time is catabolism, this breakdown of these complex molecules. Protein synthesis in the muscles is downregulated. Protein breakdown is upregulated so that amino acids are released from the skeletal muscles to fuel the immune system, wound healing, and also create new energy, that glyconeogenesis. And if the person's caloric needs aren't being met, and if they're not getting adequate protein, they're actually going to wind up with with muscle wasting in the skeletal muscles, which are like all of the muscles we use for swallowing. So then we can wind up with this like chicken or egg situation, especially with a surgery like ACDF, where maybe the patient just had ACDF surgery. Now they're having some acute trouble swallowing they've never had before. It's harder for them to get calories in. It's harder for them to get protein in. Their body's stealing protein from their skeletal muscles which are their swallowing muscles, which they're not maybe moving as much because they're swallowing less frequently. And then we can wind up with a really big problem. It's so fascinating, Bryn. I don't, I don't think, gosh, this is like something that I just wish we as SLPs were taught more about the body systems as a whole, because you, you, it makes so much sense to us with sort of all the pieces of knowledge that we know, but putting it all together like that is just, is crazy. It's wow. wild. 
It yeah. is. It is. And I think too, like, unfortunately we hear of so many patients that have to maybe go back for a repeat ACDF or have it two or three times. And I wonder how much of this attributes to that. If they didn't, if they didn't get the nutrition to be able to heal appropriately in the first place, that's just crazy. Let's, yeah. um, let's probably, what'd you say? Um, the other thing that plays into that though, is potentially the use of steroidal medications to control edema. Um, because that's been linked to graft failures and fusion failures in this population. Um, I, I have worked with surgeons that do and don't use steroids, um, but I think the general consensus is moving away from using them. Oh, that's, that's because interesting because I think all the patients that I worked with always were on the steroids. Yeah, wow. Yeah, um, the steroids can can cause the surgery to be unsuccessful. Interesting. Um, not in all patients, but in some patients. And so for that reason, surgeons are kind of leery to put a patient on steroids. That's so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's. Talk, I have two questions for you. Number one, are there different ways of performing ACDF or is it traditionally just sort of one, one way of doing it? I believe that there are some differences in surgical technique and I, I will admit that I am not well versed in this, um, but one of the, one of the big you know, differences between surgeons, maybe whether they go more to the right or the left side of the neck. And there are a few studies that have commented on that, um, but the outcome measures that they've used are not great. <laughs> so I don't know how much stock I, I necessarily put in those findings unless it's studied in a, a better way. And maybe there are some studies that I'm unaware of that look at this, um, that have more robust methods, but the ones that I've seen are not very compelling. Another really interesting Thing. And I, I just read this paper. The first author is Iwangawa, and it was published in 2021. But they actually dissected cadavers and did a cadaver study looking at the pharyngeal plexus and where it is in proximity to the prevertebral space, the pharyngeal wall, and how visible it may be during ACDF surgery. And depending on the view that the surgeon uses, the, the dissection decisions that they use to access the prevertebral space, the pharyngeal plexus is or is not visible. Um, so they found that it was it was more visible in uh, the lateral plane, but when looking at it from a more anterior oblique plane, it was it was pretty obstructed. And they actually remarked that just from a surgical standpoint, the pharyngeal plexus is very vulnerable to injury during the surgery simply because there's no like very definitive surgical or anatomic landmarks. And I also think that the laryngeal nerves get kind of all of the attention. <laughs> like the superior and recurrent laryngeal nerve and the vagus are the ones that like we're very, very worried about. Um, but this pharyngeal plexus is extremely important to swallowing yeah. um, and maybe very vulnerable to injury um, based on the different methods that a surgeon uses and how much visibility they have. Yeah. Fascinating, Bren. But let's talk a little bit about from there, let's go into what are some of the, the, the normal abnormalities that we see post ACDF surgery. Like I know it's usually, you know, posterior pharyngeal wall edema, I know is always the big one. Can you name some of sort of the hallmarks of, of post ACDF surgery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of going back to the, those, that little pocket of instrumental studies that exist, um, we know from these retrospective case control studies and also from these uh, within subject, very early post-acute um, studies that patients after ACDF surgery will present sometimes, depending on the study, which one you're reading, whether it was case control, whether it was early acute, um, 
increased pharyngeal transit time, so slower swallowing, reduced uh, dilation and distension of the pharyngoesophageal segment, reduced anterior hyoid excursion, um, and then also reduced pharyngeal constriction. And this can lead to um, aspiration and airway protection problems, but also problems with swallowing efficiency and residue. Um, interestingly, a few of the studies that are case control studies, but have actually looked a little bit further out, or at least compared patients who were closer to surgery versus further than surgery, have found that incidence of aspiration does decrease the further they get past surgery. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, because I have, I have thoughts on that based on our own findings. Um, so that's what we know. Um, and then as far as edema resolution goes, um, we don't, we don't really know a ton. Um, a lot of surgeons will say that it's worse in the first 72 hours after surgery. That makes a lot of sense to me. I've seen that in my own practice. I, I do believe that. Um, but unfortunately, I think a lot of patients are told that the edema will go away after a couple weeks and that their swallowing will be completely normal. And I have not really seen that in my clinical practice. And I definitely didn't see that in my research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's see. Where do you want to go from here, Bryn? That probably is a good transition into to what we found in our study. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's, so let's talk about what you've been up to. Yeah. So let's hear a little bit about the, the work you've done. Yeah. So in order to, to try to kind of bridge out what we know a little bit, a little bit further out past this, you know, one to two week within the first month after surgery time point, we conducted a within-subject analysis, so looking at video fluoroscopic data preoperatively and then a little further out at six weeks after surgery to assess changes and also um, to, to make more clear-cut definitions of what we define dysphagia as so that we could take measures of incidence and prevalence. Um, so we recruited, prospectively recruited and enrolled patients who are undergoing primary ACDF surgeries um, that were planned at, at NYU Langone in the departments of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. We excluded anybody who said that they had dysphagia beforehand, anybody who had a history of something that could cause dysphagia, like a stroke or head and neck cancer, um, and anybody who was undergoing revision surgery. We also weren't able to include anybody who was getting an ECDF because of a traumatic injury, because we can't plan that they're going to get trauma um, and do like a preoperative swallow study. Um, so these are just people who are getting it because of degenerative changes that are life limiting and they're not responding to conservative management. The interesting thing, though, about a study like this and the thing that I like about it is that our participants are pretty healthy. Um, our cohort was relatively young. The mean age was about 52 years and the age range is about like 41 to 70 ish. Um, you know, these are patients that should do really well with a planned surgery. Um, these are like, this is like as good as it gets, right. For the most part. Um, and we need to know what that looks like in order to understand like what optimal recovery looks like, what normal recovery looks like in an optimized patient. So we can then ask questions like, okay, but what if the patient does have a history of dysphagia? Or what if the patient does have a traumatic injury and they might have uh, other things that would contribute to dysphagia, like maybe a traumatic intubation in the field? Yeah. Um, so we were able to recruit and enroll 25 participants, but we lost four to follow up. Three decided not to, to make a follow-up appointment to come in for reassessment, and then one wasn't able to follow up because of pain. 
after the procedure. So we wound up with a cohort of 21. Um, and we gave them patient-reported outcome measures and video fluoroscopy right before they went under the knife. And then again, six weeks later, no intervention that we are aware of. Um, and what we found was that when we did a thorough kinematic analysis, so we measured PES distension range, we measured anterior highweight excursion, we measured pharyngeal shortening and pharyngeal constriction. The only thing that was changed six weeks later was pharyngeal constriction, and it was changed with a pretty significant effect size. Interesting. We didn't find any changes in measures of timing, so we didn't find increased pharyngeal transit times at that time point. And as far as holding outcomes go, we found no instances of aspiration. The worst penetration aspiration scale score in our cohort was a three. Most of their swallows were safe, um, but they had significant residue. And it was measurable and quantifiable, not only using pixel-based, like really precise quantification methods for residue, but it was also uh, captured with the MBSIMP component 16, which I think is really great for clinicians because that tool was sensitive in picking up this change in these patients. Yeah, yeah. Why, um, talk to me, Brent, about why six weeks was the, the measure that you went with. Six weeks was chosen because it was a little bit further out. It was considered to be the point by our surgeons at which they would expect edema to have subsided and resolved a little bit. And then logistically, it was also the time that they were coming back for regularly scheduled follow-up. So it made it convenient for the participants um, okay. to take part in the study. Okay. So you really didn't find anything crazy? We didn't find anything crazy. Um, we did find that they definitely still have some edema. Um, their yep. pharyngeal walls were much thicker postoperatively, still at six weeks, than they were preoperatively. The thing that was the most shocking to me was when we put this in a statistical model, uh, we used something called a linear mixed effects model, where you can put in a bunch of different predictors for an outcome, and our outcome was residue because that was the thing that changed. Um, we put in all these predictors, and constriction was very predictive of residue. If you don't have great constriction, you're going to have residue. Mm -hmm. Edema postoperatively, when we control for things like time point um, and, and constriction is in the model as well, was not predictive in and of itself of increased residue. Um, and that surprised me a lot yeah. as a clinician. Like I, I thought residue for or edema would for certainly be more related to residue than what we actually found. Cool. Well, that just sounds like some really fun, nerdy stuff. It is some fun, nerdy stuff. Um, <laughs> that that model and the, the st full statistical analysis for anybody who just wants to get really nerdy <laughs> was recently yeah. published in, in dysphagia. Um, yeah. But it's it was a really interesting relationship that we found. And we still don't feel that we fully understand it. Um, it, it needs more study. Uh, it would be interesting to see if these findings were replicated in a bigger cohort that's a little more heterogeneous. Um, but it, it was shocking to me, honestly. And especially after going through and actually measuring all of these people's uh, prefertural spaces, yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, this doesn't look good. Like surely like, this yeah. is like causing problems. But constriction was, it was really the thing. Interesting, interesting. So where does this, where does this lead you to? What's, what's next? Yeah, so we are currently in the process of analyzing our patient reported outcome measures. 
and seeing how those correspond to the analysis that we did for swallowing. Um, I have an inkling that the patient reported outcome measures may correlate more strongly with edema than with actual residue um, or changes in swallowing. Um, but that, that analysis is still kind of in the works. We're also looking at dysphonia um, a bit more and the, the incidence of dysphonia and whether there are any changes uh, perceptually in patients' voices after the surgery. And then we're looking ahead at potentially, you know, are there interventions that could be done to help reduce some of these things at the six-week time point, um, some behavioral interventions that would be sellable to surgeons, easy for patients and clinicians to implement to try to help improve outcomes. Um, so that's all kind of on the horizon um, and very TBD, <laughs> but exciting. Um, yeah. I hope that we can find something that helps get our patients better outcomes. Yeah. Was there anything really shocking? Like, did you have any really crazy outliers? Uh, the craziest thing for me really was the edema finding. Yeah. I yeah. mean, granted, I had all kinds of hypotheses. I thought that, you know, based on the pre-existing literature that we would have timing changes and the, we would have reduced hyoid excursion and there'd be like a little aspiration here and there and there wasn't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think when I look back at the bigger picture, it makes sense. We also analyzed all of these swallows using the MBS-IMP um, and it really kind of matched up a bit and, and provided some nuance to our kinematic analysis. So we found that pharyngeal stripping wave was bad <laughs> after surgery. Um, it, was, it was definitely worse. Um, and so was epiglottic deflection because uh, yeah. the epiglottis really kind of relies on the posterior pharyngeal wall to help move the bolus off the, the tip of it and, and fully invert the tip. Um, but we also found that there was a significant but very small effective change for velopharyngeal closure and for laryngeal elevation. Um, and what my gut kind of tells me about that is that if we're looking at some of these other past studies where they are looking at patients who had ECDF a little earlier on, and then looking at patients who had who are a little further post, and they're seeing the aspiration rates kind of are less in this group that's a little further post, and I'm not seeing it at six weeks. I wonder if, you know, maybe this is a problem acutely, but by six weeks, that's the thing that's starting to get better. Yeah. Things like laryngeal elevation and airway closure, but residue and constriction is still very problematic. Yeah. This, this is so fascinating. And, I, and I'm thinking of it from my, my fees brain, because I think that's how many, how many of these patients that I used to see. And I, it's so shocking what you're saying about the edema, because I think there's so many patients that I would do a fees on that the edema would be so bad, just completely, you know, covering the entire airway. And I just kept thinking like, I can't even see the airway. I can't even visualize the vocal folds because the edema is so bad. There's so much residue. And then you just infer, okay, they've got to be aspirating. You know, there's got to be so much going on here. So this is fascinating on the flip side saying that there is a lot of swelling, but it's not causing a lot of aspiration. Yeah. Not in this cohort. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and not, not at this time point in this cohort. Yeah. Uh, so my, my caution to this and really with any study, especially in swallowing where our sample sizes are pretty small is we may have been statistically underpowered for some of our analyses. Um, but we did see a pretty strong effective change with edema preoperatively to postoperatively. And it just wasn't as strong of a predictor in our model when we controlled for time point and 
constriction and other things that are also influencing residue. Yeah. This is, this is cool stuff, Bryn. I think I just finished a, a biostats class and, and I, it, it was tough because there, I couldn't, a lot of the biostats information was, was presented for like PTs and NPs and stuff. So not really in the swallowing realm of things. So to hear you talk about effect size and effective change and all that stuff in, in terms of swallowing is really speaks to my nerdy brain. So thank you. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's not something that again, like I, I took statistics in grad yeah. school. I think for yeah. a lot of us, it was, you know, we have mixed feelings about it. Like it maybe yeah. is not our favorite class. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe like I, you know, love research and still have mixed feelings about statistics sometimes yes. when I'm picking it in a class. Um, but I, I remember p-values, you know, or you remember 0 0.05 probability being significant, meaning that uh, finding is, is less likely to be due to random chance. But I never remember learning about effect sizes and they're yeah. so important Yeah, because you can have a significant finding, but it may not be having a big impact or be a very clinically meaning finding if the effect size is small. Yep. So yep. what we're really looking for is a small p-value and a big old effect size. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was a big thing that we had to do was, you know, we'd get we'd given tons and tons and tons of stats and we wouldn't have to calculate the stats, but we would have to give the clinical implications of, of the effect of change. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so... This, this is cool, but this is something that I wish as a clinician, I knew more about, but yeah. Yeah. So cool. Okay. Um, let's see. Did we, do we cover everything, Brenda? Is there anything else you want to go through? Uh, I think we covered most things. Um, the, the last little bit that I might leave people with is just maybe some hope for collaboration in the future. I, I know that a lot of clinicians, out there are listening to this and they're like, this is all well and good, but I can't even get neurosurgery to consult me. <laughs> like I can't even like get a seat at the table. Um, Especially when they like, deny that we even exist, that this problem exists. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And like, know that like, I hear you and I feel your pain and I've been there. Um, but some things that, that have worked for me and that have been helpful for me are trying to attend rounds if you're not attending surgery rounds at your hospital um, and you're, you're working in acute care and you know there's a surgery team there and they do rounds, I would really try to advocate for that. Maybe find out the rounds your PT and OT are going to because they are probably going to rounds for all of the surgery patients in your hospital and try to go because that's a really great way to kind of perk your ears and be like, oh, this patient sounds like they need me. <laughs> and, and rounds is a, a forum where you can express that, where the surgeon is attentive and maybe listening, or at least the, the nurse practitioner or the PA is attentive and maybe listening and they have the ear of the surgeon um, to, to give your argument for why you should be seeing that patient. Um, that may help a lot. And it just helps build bridges because they see your face. They know your name. It's a lot harder to be mean and nasty to somebody that you talk to every day. <laughs> so they're, they're a lot more likely to, to listen, um, especially if they see you making that effort. It can be a hard sell with managers and with productivity, um, but I, I would encourage you to, to fight for that and to advocate for that. Um, you can also advocate or talk to your team about doing a standard preoperative and postoperative screening. And this could be done by an SLP or it could be done by the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant on the surgery team, but to actually use a validated outcome measure. Um, I would personally recommend the Hospital for Special Surgery Dysphagia and Dysphonia Index, which is for ACDF. Um, it's specifically designed for spine surgery patients. It was validated in this population. 
It also has published minimal clinically important differences or MCIDs where there's a threshold on that of change on that screener that would be considered clinically meaningful for the patient and significant for the patient. It doesn't take very long to administer. I work in acute and I have like no time with to do anything <laughs> and, and I've shifted to using it. It really doesn't add time to my evals and it gives me uh, something that I can bring back to the team and say, this is what your patient is experiencing. You should administer this again uh, after you've you know, referred for treatment and, and see if you have a change. Um, and you might even get more buy-in that way. If they start using this validated outcome measure, they can start identifying maybe patients they thought they were concerned about preoperatively and then they give that outcome measure and they go, oh, maybe I want to get like a pre-op um, work up on you. <laughs> see if, see if there's something going on here before we, before we cut. Yeah. Yeah. This, that's so fascinating. I think there, there's, I wish again, SLPs knew more about MCIDs and the importance of using those and the rich data that it really can give us with some of these patients. Um, something else I wanted to mention was I, I, I remember one neurosurgery group that I worked with and I had the, the neurosurgeon tell me, you know, sort of, he was like, well, sort of off the record, like, I don't want to refer my patients to you. I don't want it documented that there was complications. I don't want anything or, you know, he's like, it messes with my reimbursement. It's, it's just a whole can of worms that I don't want to open. So that's why, no, I don't want to refer my patients to you. And that really made me angry for a very, very long time, obviously. But now I'm also wondering, like, how do we pair that conversation with what you said about these nutritional implications that can essentially negate the entire surgery to begin with? You know, I'm like, there's got to be some sort of way that we can marry these concepts not to, you know, have the neurosurgeon, you know, have all these horrible outcomes. But these are things that matter because you may still have an even worse outcome yeah. <laughs> by not addressing these preoperatively. Yeah. And I've, I've heard the same, the same argument. It's out there. Yeah. It makes me sad. Like I would never want to go to a surgeon whose attitude was like, I don't want to work you up because I don't want you to affect my reimbursement. Right. Right. Um, right. Terrible. Right. But, but unfortunately it does exist. Um, and it is something that's probably in the back of your surgeon's minds of like, mm, is this really like worth like, consulting speech and having it documented, or is it going to get better? I think one of the best kind of ways to maybe start working around that with your teams is to advocate for preoperative screening and maybe even counseling um, about like why nutritional intake is going to be important. And it may be hard for you to swallow. And if it is like you need to, to voice that to your surgeon so that we can get you to see a nutritionist and maybe an SLP um, and they may be a little more receptive to coming at it from the front end than coming at it from the back end. If it's something that they, they weren't anticipating being a problem for that yeah. patient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, you know, with our head and neck cancer patients, I mean, how much, you know, pre-op counseling they get and it's, exactly. yeah, it's, it's wild. Crazy. Um, okay. Anything, anything else, Bryn? I think, I think that's the meat and potatoes. I think that's a lot of it. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bryn. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, you shared another paper with us and I would love for you to talk a little bit about that if you could. I did. So the, the paper that I shared, you asked, um, a paper that, you know, really kind of shifted my thinking, uh, as a clinician and, and even as a scientist. And I really want to give a shout out to this amazing paper by Riley Robeson, 
Um, the title of this paper is New Horizons in Understanding Oral Health and Swallowing Function Within the Context of Frailty, and it was published in 2023 in Age and Aging. It's a really amazing read, if, especially if you're working with older individuals who may, may be frail or pre-frail. Um, it really kind of helped me shift my thinking about dysphagia and swallowing um, and that the intermix between frailty, but not just frailty and swallowing, but also other things that are maybe contributing to frailty or making this patient susceptible to being frail or susceptible to dysphagia, maybe within their community, like access to healthcare, for example, um, or cost. Uh, it's just, it's a really amazing read. And I would, I would recommend every clinician out there to, to download it and read it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Right. Well, thank you so much, Bren. This has been an awesome conversation, I think, from clinical to research to all the things in between. And I just, I super appreciate your insights. And I have so much respect for clinician researchers that see the problems, but then also try to solve the problems, but then obviously see all the, uh, you know, the barriers in the, in the middle. So thank you for sharing that with everyone, because I think that's so important that a lot of people don't realize, well, why isn't this being studied or why isn't that being studied? And, and it stinks. I wish we could study everything, but yeah. um, thank you again. Yeah. You, you, yep. Go ahead. All I can say is that it takes a village. Um, like I'm like getting by with a little help from like all of my friends. Yes. <laughs> there are so many collaborators that like made this work possible from the yeah. surgeons at the NYU Spine Center um, to the, the clinician researchers at NY, the NYU Voice Center that actually collected all of our data and collaborated with us um, through the Department of Otolaryngology, um, and then my my amazing mentors, um, Dr. Sonia Mulfenter, but also Dr. Aaron Johnson and Dr. Martina Bilal, um, they've really supported me through this and and helped me learn and and think critically and ask tough questions uh, that don't fit up with the the way that I think that things should be sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this work with without the people that have helped support it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bren. This has been so wonderful having you on. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.